All right, amen. It's good to see you. It's good to worship with you all this morning. Thank you for choosing to come here and to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. My name's Tori. I am also one of the pastors here at our church, and I would like to dive right in. You don't need to turn to this passage, but I'm going to read it to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 says, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's why we're here. That's why we're celebrating. Death couldn't hold him. Jesus was raised. Our Savior King triumphed over sin and over death. And we have a living God. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's a living God. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's our God. That's our King. That's Jesus. Now, the last two Easter's, let me refresh your memory a little bit. The last two of them, two of them, I talked quite a bit about some of the historical evidence of reasons to believe in the resurrection. We talked about some of the theories of where Christ's body could have gone and and debunked some of those theories. We talked about the early dating and the the multiple eyewitness testimonies and all of the different reasons why you would believe anything you read about in history to be true. All these verifiable evidences of the, the, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. But we're not going to do that today. Instead, I would like for us to take a peek into the life to come, the resurrection of God's people, because of the resurrection that has already taken place, the resurrection of Christ. I want to talk to us about the better life to come. That's the title of the message today, Better Life to Come. It doesn't really do it justice. It's not just a better life. It's an infinitely better life to come because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of what he accomplished. Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. It says in Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There's a life to come. There's a resurrection to come that Jesus has promised that we know is true because Christ was risen from the grave. There's a life to come. We want life, do we not? We're looking for life, are we not? We're longing for life. We want life, and that's good. That makes us human. I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question. You can keep the answer to yourself. Honestly, right now, today, in your story, where are you looking for life? Where are you searching? To whom or where are you looking for life? In God. I like that answer. Yeah. Are we looking to Christ for life? We want life. 
It makes us human. We also don't like death very much, and that's okay too. That also makes us human. God doesn't, God's not okay with death either. He went through a lot to conquer it for us. We don't like death. Some of the strategies we have are to either not talk about it ever until we have to. Another strategy when it comes to death is we let the fear of it control us our entire lives. We don't talk about it. We let the fear of it control us. Another strategy, which might be more of a minority, there are people that are trying to conquer death on our own. I'm going to talk just for a minute, humor me, about transhumanists. Now, transhumanism is using technology to enhance life. And there are a lot of really positive benefits about the work of using technology to enhance life. Ever seen prosthetic limbs or a pacemaker? There's a bunch of ways that the the transhumanists have, have created technology in a way that greatly enhances life in ways we should really be thankful for. But it's also true that there are people that would say that they don't just want to enhance life through technology. It's what they see as the hope for conquering death itself. It's the hope for eternal life for some. It's through technology. Now, I want to share, I have a picture of a man named John Lennox. He is a bioethicist. He's a Christian apologist, an Irish mathematician. I could just listen to his accent all day. He's brilliant. He speaks in an interview, I'm going to paraphrase it for you, in talking about transhumanism, but specifically the way that, that some believe that technology will save us. And here's what he says, that will actually give us eternal life. Here's what he says. I respect what you're after. I do. But you're too late. And he pauses and he says, whenever he talks to somebody with, with that belief, what do you mean we're too late? We're not too late. He says, you're too late. I believe there's powerful evidence that the problem of physical death was solved 20 centuries ago by a resurrection in Jerusalem. We celebrate it every Easter. That's today. If Jesus broke the death barrier, that brings everything into a different light. Then we need to take seriously Jesus' claim that he, God, became human. Because think about what the transhumanists are trying to do. They're trying to turn humans into gods. The Christian message goes the opposite direction. God became human. Some take seriously the idea that we can turn humans into gods. Why not take seriously the idea that God became man? What the transhumanists are attempting to do is use human intelligence to bypass the problem of moral evil and live forever. And they're never going to do it. Why? No utopia has ever been built. There have been attempts at re-engineering humanity, and what did it lead to? Rivers of blood. Christianity, however, has the beautiful answer, which also takes the reality of moral evil seriously. Jesus became human to give us life. The dream of the transhumanist is already realized in Christ. Christ promises eternal life, and it begins now, because he rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, we can take his promise seriously that we, those who have faith in Christ, will be raised from the dead to live with him in another transcendent realm that is more real 
than this one. And that is going to be the biggest uploading ever. <laughs> Love that. Some of us, we never talk about death. Some of us, we let the fear of it control us. Others, maybe a smaller community, are trying to defeat it themselves with technology. And still others take what God said seriously. Believe what God said seriously, that he is taking care of it. 1 John 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Philippians 3 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Can we talk a little bit about the life to come? The infinitely better life to come that Christ has secured. The resurrection of the body at the end of the age. That's what we're going to do. And I thought one of the best places to go to talk about that is a little bit further down in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be looking at verses 35 through 49. If you would like a Bible, and you're looking in front of you and there is no Bible, you can slip your hand up, and that will turn into a Bible in front of you. If you just put your hand up, have your other hand in front of you, someone will walk around, and they would gladly give you a, the Word of God. And you're welcome to keep that, you're welcome to give it away, whatever you'd like to do with it, it's yours. You can give it back at the end if you'd prefer to do that. Also, I'm going to have slides behind me as we go through this passage. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 49. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament after the Gospels. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then there you are, 1 Corinthians. And we're in chapter 15, verses 35 through 49. Here's what God's word says. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. 
The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's what God's word says. It starts with a question in verse 35. What is that question? But someone will ask, how? How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And that question leads us into the response from from Paul who wrote this letter. The, The response to the question, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Leads us to our main idea. Paul's response is essentially this. The Lord gives life that is appropriate for earth and heaven now. The Lord will give life that is appropriate for the new heavens and the new earth. You following that? The Lord gives life now that is appropriate for earth and heaven. And the Lord will give life that will be appropriate, if you will, for the new heavens and the new earth. So, first, we're going to talk about life now, on earth, and in heaven. Heaven having to do with the skies and the universe. And then life on the new heavens and the new earth. So, first, let's look at life on earth and heaven now, verses 36 to 41. In these verses, life on earth and heaven now, Paul talks about the creator and how he created both the animate and the inanimate. He created the living and what is non-living, all of creation, now, on earth, and in heaven. The creator did that. So start looking first at verse 36, those first three words. You foolish person. Time out. Why is he calling this person or people who ask this question fools? The question is, it seems like a pretty reasonable question, doesn't it? He's talking about the resurrection of the dead, and someone asks something like, how? How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? How is that going to happen, and what are we going to look like? What are we going to be like? What are those bodies going to be like? It seems like a pretty rational question, doesn't it? Can you explain to me what that will look like? And Paul's response is, you fool. (laughs) Why? Why does he respond that way? Well, if you notice, he says, but someone will ask, anticipating a question before it's asked. Paul knows the audience in whom he's addressing, and he realizes that there will be people that he is talking to that don't actually have an interest of hearing the answers to these questions. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Imagine it more in a sarcastic tone. Oh, you say there's a world and a life to come, and we're going to be raised with new bodies. Tell me more, professor. Tell me, pal, what is that going to look like? Who's going to do it? They didn't actually care about an answer. What's happening is, because they cannot conceive of or imagine or understand what the life to come will be like, how that will happen, what people will be like in that time with resurrected bodies, because I can't conceive it or imagine it, therefore it can't be true. That's what's happening. 
Do you see how that's dangerous? If that's how you live and if that's what you believe? Can we talk honestly for a second? I'm just going to be really brief about this. We know less about how life works now than we know about how it does work. Okay? We don't even know how consciousness works. And yet here we are, conscious beings. We know less about how life works than we know about how it does. And yet we're here. We're alive. We're communicating. We live. It takes humility to say, even though I don't know exactly how all of this works, I'm going to trust the God who made me and everything else. And even though I don't know exactly how the life to come, what that will be like, how he'll do it, what the resurrected bodies will be like, I can still trust the one who said it and who made us. In fact, earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, those without the spirit of God, the natural person without the spirit of God who doesn't trust in the Lord, they're going to find spiritual truths often to be foolish. They're going to find it foolish. But Paul's response is, the person who believes in God is not the foolish one. But those of us who think we can understand and think we, we, we can solve, we can figure out the answers to everything before we make any decisions or live our lives or make choices, that's where foolishness comes in. He starts with, you foolish person, that's why. And then he keeps going. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. What is he talking about? Paul has Genesis 1 and 2 in the back of his mind as he's talking about sowing and seeds and fruit and all this. He has Genesis 1 and 2 in the back of his mind. The God who created everything out of nothing by speaking it into existence is the true God. The one, by the word of his power, created everything out of nothing and then filled it. And look how... It's described as God filling this earth in Genesis 1. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. So Paul brings up this analogy of sowing seeds. And he starts it in order to swing back to it in a little bit to talk about the resurrection of the body, to compare us and our, the future resurrection of the body as a seed. We are the seed now, and we don't yet see what that seed will become. But the creator has his intended purpose in mind. He says, look now at, compare it with fruit or flower seeds. You don't see with the seed exactly God's intended purpose. But it becomes what God created it to be. There's continuity and discontinuity. It is like, but very much unlike the seed to what it becomes. Verse 38, God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So here's, here's part of the answer to the question. Here's part of the answer to the question, how are the dead raised, with what kind of bodies do they come? In talking about life now, he's describing how God gives it form. God gives it life. God chooses as he wills both to fill life now on earth and in heaven, 
both the living creatures and the non-living creatures, his whole creation. He chooses, he designs now, and he will in the future. He gives life now as he chooses in ways appropriate for earth and heaven, the skies now of the animate and inanimate, living and non-living. So look at verses 39 to 41 for some examples of that. None of this will surprise us, for not all flesh is the same. But there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. We're not surprised by this. We're, we're used to different kinds of physicalities, both for living beings and non-living, for animate and inanimate creations of God, right? We know that birds in, in the sky are different from fish in the sea, and human beings are different from both birds and fish. The Lord clothes us, if you will. He clothes his creation, with physical bodies that are appropriate for the environment in which they live. He gives physical bodies that are clothed with appropriate flesh for their environment, for their surroundings. Not surprised by that. And like their earthly counterparts, the heavenly bodies, the celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the universe, God has created for their specific purposes. And he mentions here in these verses, one of those purposes is their splendor, their beauty, their brightness that he's made. You see, the diversity of glory, of brightness, of splendor, of the sun, the moon, the stars, God's creation in the cosmos, reveal to us, reveal to his creation the diversity of God's, of his design, of his power, of his beauty. Does anyone else love learning about the universe, stars? I love it. Not everybody does, and I just don't understand it. I was like, how are you not interested in this at all? Like, I don't know a lot about it, but I love learning. I looked up a couple facts. The sun is 300,000 times the mass of our Earth. That's fascinating to me. There are over 100 billion suns just in our galaxy. And the sun, our sun, is nowhere near to the biggest sun that God made. There was one, I forget exactly the name of it, it's called a hypergiant star, 1,700 times the diameter of our sun. It makes our sun look small. And all of this reflects the glory of the creator who knows each one of those stars by name. It reveals his power. It reveals his Godhead. It reveals his, 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 his beauty and his artistic design. They're there for their created purposes. Who chose these modes of existence? It says in verse 38, God did. God did. In his creation, both animate and inanimate, living, non-living, in earth now, in the heavens now, are appropriate for this present age. But he's not done. It's like a seed that God will transform into what he intended, the heavens, the earth, his creatures, his people, to eventually be. It's like a seed now compared to what it will transform into in the age to come. 
So let's talk about life on the new heavens and the new earth in verses 42 through 49. In verses 42 to 44, he continues this analogy of the seed, of sowing the seed. And then he talks about the sons of the first and the last Adam in verses 45 through 49. So he continues talking about sowing seeds. But what seed is he talking about now? Look at verses 42 to 44. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. What is he talking about that we sow? Ourselves. Our lives. Our bodies. Have you ever thought of yourself as a seed that one day will die and God will turn it into what he intends it to be? That's what he's telling us in this passage. We are sowing a life. All phases of our existence, from our first to our final breath, we may be buried, we will not remain buried. God who created the seed, if you will, our life, will also transform it into what it is intended to become. But in in, in case you have the thought of, well, if God just takes care of all of that and I have absolutely nothing to do with it, think again. We play a part. Jesus said every careless word will be accounted for. Every thought, every word, every action, every lack of action or or omission, like one of our kids said a couple weeks back when we did that science experiment and nobody got hurt and while the moms were away, we're all good. (laughs) Everything we don't do, God knows about it. And it's, it's, it's working towards something. It says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We have a part of what God is doing and of what we become. Life now is preparation for the life to come. Can I say that again? Life now is the preparation for the life to come. It's like a dress rehearsal. Daniel 12 says, Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those of us who have truly trusted in Christ as our Lord and our Savior, who believe that he lived for us, died for us, rose from the grave, everything we do in this life, the deeds done in the body, this this seed that we are sowing, God will transform it into his intended purpose, the resurrection to come. But life now, he says in these verses... It's perishable, a life of dishonor, a life of weakness. Now, Paul knows, and he said in many other places in the New Testament, and we know, life isn't all terrible. Let's not have such a just only negative view about it. There's some great aspects of life and and joy to share and all these gifts God gives us in relationship. and go on and on and on. But life is characterized, as he's saying, is it not, by perishability, by dishonor, by weakness. We know very well life is full of loss, full of grief, 
full of incompleteness, emptiness, insecurity, insufficiency, embarrassment or shame, confusion, bondage, the inability to live the kinds of lives we know we should live, the inability to give or even receive love in the ways we're meant to. We live in a life that is full of decay and that does end in death, it seems. But what we're celebrating today in the resurrection of Jesus is the exclamation point, that is not the end. There is a life to come. So we can believe when he says in verse 44, this seed of our lives that will one day be buried, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. We live and die embodied. Life as we know it in the natural. He raises us in bodies suitable for the life to come. A spiritual body. A life, a body dominated by the spirit of God. As a body depends upon its immediate environment and purpose that God provides... While bodies are now appropriate for the setting of life here in this age, now God will provide a heavenly or a spiritual body that will be eternal, not temporal, that will be honorable, not dishonorable, that will be powerful, not weak. They will be new, they will be glorious, they will be sinless, which we can barely imagine any of this, and they will be deathless. In the resurrection to come, he will give us bodies that are appropriate for the environment of eternity. I don't think we think about that enough. But how does he do it? How does he do it? Well, let's keep reading. In verses 45 to 49, he brings up this comparison of the sons of the first and the last Adam. Look at verse 45. Thus it is written... The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven." Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. How does he do it? It's because he's conforming us into a different image. He's creating a new kind of humanity. He talks about the first Adam, Adam, and the last Adam, Jesus. Adam is, who is Adam? Adam is us, people of the dust, who work the dust, who return to the dust. Men and women who are created in the image of God, given the breath of life, given the opportunity to work and have dominion over God's world, representing him, made to flourish in the four foundational relationships he's made and he's given to us, our relationship with God, our relationship with others, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with this world. Made to flourish in that. But, if you know the story, Adam did not. Eve did not. They turned away from God. 
And the Bible says we're all guilty of the same thing. We turn away from God's design, from God's intentions, and we turn to our own purposes. And we make something else our God. We look for life somewhere or in someone else. And since then, since the fall of Genesis 3, there has been a distortion, a marring of God's good world, the beauty of God's good world, and the beauty and the design of God's people, still made in God's image, but with the image of Adam, an image of death and decay, as it says in Romans 5. Genesis 5 says, After Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. And every person since has been in the image, if you will, of Adam. Death. But Christ, but God, the man of heaven, God himself, became like us to make us like him. And everything that happened in Adam is more than counterbalanced in what happened in Christ. His perfect obedience, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection from the grave, his victory has been given to us. And somehow, through his spirit, he is making us more like Jesus. He's conforming us to the image of his son. That's what it says in Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He's making us like Christ. We're part of a new family, a new brother, a new father, a new family of God, a new kind of humanity that God has started with Christ as the firstborn, the first fruits of this new, resurrected, eternal, honorable, powerful human beings. What will that look like? What well, we often say here, look no further than Jesus himself. Paul Gardner said in his exegetical commentary of the New Testament that Christ as the last Adam has revealed in his resurrected being what it is to be one of the renewed people who now find themselves living with imperishable and incorruptible bodies prepared for the new earth. The resurrected Christ is the start of the new way of being but is still physical being with an appropriately transformed body. What will that be? What will that look like? I can tell you, check out the Gospels. That's, that's good for a pastor to say, right? Read the, read the Gospels. And see, after Christ was risen from the grave, what that looked like. How he was both irrecognizable but recognizable. Read about it. And get excited about the life to come. We want life, and that's okay. That makes us human. We're not okay with death, and that's okay. That makes us human. Neither is the God of life. Some of our strategies, we don't talk about death. We let the fear of it control us. Some people are trying to override moral evil and have us live forever through technology. And still others believe what God said, that he is taking care of it. 1 John 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Think about that seed. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, 
because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And then Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Your death is not the end. It really is the beginning of not just a better life to come if your faith is in Christ, but an infinitely better life to come. And listen, that's true. Whether we can understand it, imagine it, conceive of it, or not. I'm about to pray. I want you to know that if you would like to be prayed with, if you know the Lord, if you don't know the Lord, whatever stage of life you're in and your walk with the Lord, for any reason you want prayer, there's going to be people over there in that corner praying after church. Come right on over and we'll pray with you. And there's plenty of people here that would love to pray with you for any reason after the service today. Let me pray as the band comes up and we continue worshiping. God, you're the God of life. You give life. We don't understand exactly how we're even alive right now. We have more unanswered questions than we do answered questions. And God, it's humbling to admit that. We don't know. We don't know how life works. We don't know how you created the heavens and the earth now. And we certainly don't know how you're going to do it in the life to come. But Lord, because you were raised from the dead, we can have hope in what you said. The same spirit that raised you from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies through your spirit who dwells in us. It's by faith in you, Jesus, the conqueror of death, our sinless, perfect Savior King who walked out of that tomb. And God, I pray, may we walk out of here with hope of not just of the life to come, but also hope now, knowing our lives matter as we follow you, as we believe in you. And God, if nothing else, help us remember you're the one who walked out of the tomb. So let us look to you, talk to you, trust you when it comes to life now and in the life to come. God, would you teach us a little bit more about the reality of that? Forgive our unbelief. Forgive us, Lord. Draw us close to your Son. And Father, I pray if, there's, if there is anyone here that knows, Lord, there's, there's something they want to talk to you about. There's something they want prayer for. There's something they want, to, they, they want to pray about. Help them listen to that. Help them listen to you, Lord. May we be a church that grows both in the truth about who you are as we learn as disciples together, but also that we grow in love for each other, that we reflect you in ways that are that are true to you, to your character, to your patience, to your forgiveness, to your joy, to your peace, to you, Jesus. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your comfort. Thank you for your life.
God, thank you for everyone in this room. Thank you for every person who put in the time to make today happen. Bless them, Lord. We pray all these things and more in Jesus' name. Amen.